First Peter chapter 1. We're continuing our series entitled The Hope of Salvation. We've been looking at verses 13, or in this series we're looking at verses 13 through 21. So I'll, be, I'll read that uh, section this morning as we begin. Beginning in verse 13. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance. But as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. And if ye call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear, for as much as ye know, that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, as silver and gold, from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot, who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who by him do believe in God that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Peter is writing to believers in the early days of Christendom, and these are people who have been dealing with a significant amount of persecution. These folks have lost possessions, they've lost income, many lost their jobs, some lost their homes, some lost family members through persecution, some lost their own freedom. Peter is writing to them to seek to encourage them in the midst of all these things they're facing and dealing with. We're reminded, of course, we live in an anti-God world. The philosophy of the world today is not in line with Scripture. It's not in accordance with Scripture. It's not supportive of God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But it is in support of the God of this world, Satan, who's seeking to dethrone and overthrow the Lord. Well, a lot of folks face challenges and struggles as they seek to live for the Lord in this wicked and perverse generation. These folks were no different. Peter is trying to encourage them and challenging them to continue in the way. He covers five areas that would involve encouragement. We've already looked at several of these. Verse 13 deals with the glory of God. Verses 14 and 15, the holiness of God. Last week we looked at verse 16, the word of God. Today we're going to consider verse 17, the judgment of God. And then the last message in this series will be verses 18 through 21, dealing with the love of God. When we think about this matter of judgment, verse 17, And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. I don't know about you, but when somebody's talking about judgment, I'm not really thinking about that in terms of encouragement. Judgment has the idea of a penalty, a punishment, a correction. But that's not the way Peter uses this word here, nor is it the the topic of this particular verse. You see, every word in this verse is important and filled with meaning. 
And by the way, this verse introduces everything to follow in the rest of this chapter. Consider several things this morning about this matter of judgment. What is he talking about? How is this an encouragement to us? Start off with verse 17, the first phrase, And if you call on the Father, this deals with our reliance upon the Lord. You see, if you call on the Father, notice he starts out by saying, if, if, there's a big, big word right there. If is one of the biggest little words in the Bible. If we do right, if we follow the Lord, if we're kind, if we, if we, if we, the problem is a lot of us just don't want to. We would rather be uh, able to continue in our own, uh, follow our own interest, do what we want, do what satisfies us, take care of our own interests. But the Lord tells us we're supposed to be following him. So if we follow him, we find there are blessings that will come our way. And that's what Peter's emphasizing here. If we call, if ye call on the Father. See, if you're a true Christian, you're going to call upon God the Father for help, comfort, strength, and direction. The problem was, and we find this not just in Peter, but we find this in John's writing, Paul's writings in the New Testament. There were a lot of false teachers. There were a lot of false prophets in that day. And as a result, they were leading people, they were encouraging people, they were moving people, trying to influence them to turn to someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ for comfort and guidance and direction. First off, we turn to him for salvation. So that's the start right there. Every one of us who have repented of our sin and received Christ, Christ as Savior, we are a child of God. We have turned to Him. But consider the multitudes beyond that who have not trusted in the Lord. So Peter's kind of drawing a line here. He's talking to those who turn to the true and living God. Not an idol. Not someone they pray to because their ancestors taught them to pray to this wooden or stone statue. No, they're turning to the true and living God. And it is that true and living God who made us new creatures in Christ. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believed on his name. What a thrill to know. We today are a part of the family of God because we have put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what Paul said, Galatians 3.26 Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So Peter's emphasizing here, the ones he's talking to are those who call upon the Lord, the true and living God, and turn to Him for help and comfort and strength and encouragement in this time of tribulation and persecution. No matter what's going on around us, we need to keep in mind it is the Lord who directs and watches over us. He's in control of what's going on in this world today. And we need to continually and faithfully look to him and not get our eyes locked in on CNN or MSNBC or Fox News, not to chase after all the different conspiracy theories that we hear about on the internet, not to listen to every Tom, Dick, and Harry that we meet out in public who has their own view and their own idea about what's going on. No, we turn to the Lord, the true and living God. Norman Geisler, he said, So I cast my lot with him, not the one who claimed wisdom, 
Confucius, or the one who claimed enlightenment, Buddha, or the one who claimed to be a prophet, Muhammad, but with the one who claimed to be God in flesh. The one who declared before Abraham was, I am. So right from the get-go, Peter's saying here, in this verse anyway, you're going through struggles, turn to him. Zdeo Moody has said, trust in yourself and you're doomed to disappointment. Trust in your friends and they will die and leave you. Trust in money and you may have it taken from you. Trust in reputation and some slanderous tongue may blast it. But trust in God. You will never be confounded in time or eternity. So may we, during times of struggle and difficulty, be encouraged to know we can trust in him, we can rely upon him, we can depend upon the Lord our God. But he goes on to say, and if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, that's our reassurance in this matter of judgment. It's a matter of impartiality, the phrase who without respect of persons emphasizes the fact that God deals with all peoples fairly and justly. God's opinion and view of mankind cannot be swayed by a bribe or a strong arm or manipulation. No, God is all too wise for that and he would never He's all too good to make a mistake, will never make a mistake, will never do us wrong, and always deals with us fairly and justly. This is a lesson I had to learn as a young Christian many years ago. God never does anyone wrong. You might feel like you've been treated unjustly. You might, not, you might feel like things haven't gone your way. You might feel like God has overlooked you or not treated you right. But beloved, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. He maketh no mistake. This matter of without respect of persons, it literally means without receiving the face It's easy for us as humans to be kind to someone because we know them, we respect them, we appreciate them, or we desire their respect. But God's not a respecter of persons. God deals with all peoples accordingly. This is in matters of correction. This is in matters of meeting needs. This is in a matter of doing that which is right. Deuteronomy 10.17 tells us, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, a great God, a mighty and terrible, which regardeth not persons nor taketh reward. What, assur- what assurance we have, the confidence we have that God will deal with us fairly and justly. In the context here, as Peter is writing to these people, he's saying, God knows what you're going through and he's dealing with you appropriately. The Lord knows what each of us is going through, and he does the same. He deals us with us justly, rightfully, correctly. And we should have that confidence in knowing he will always do that which is good for us. Jesus had the same testimony. Matthew chapter 26, verse 16. The Pharisees, 
sent out some men to test the Lord, and they, they sent unto him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Master, we know that thou art true, and teachest the way of God in truth. Neither carest thou for any man, for thou regardest not the person of men. When you know you're dealing with someone who's fair and just, it makes the outcome more palatable, even though it might not be what we're looking for. Understand, God always, always does right. So we can rely upon him. We can rest assured he will do us right. Now Peter gets into the crux of the matter. and He says, if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, what? Judgeth according to every man's work. This is where we get into this idea of the encouragement in judgment. He judges each one of us according to character. Let me clarify a couple of things here first of all. When the Lord comes back to the comes to the clouds and calls the church out, we refer to that as the rapture, the catching up, the catching away. God is going to declare, come up hither, and the, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That's the assurance we have concerning what's ahead. And by the way, that is the next event on God's prophetic calendar. All the requirements, the prerequisites necessary for that to take place have been met. His return we refer to as being imminent. It can happen at any moment. One reason we ought to live for the Lord daily. Well, anyway, he's going to take us home. What are we going to do when we get to heaven? Well, we're going to be ushered into the uh, the throne room of our Lord, and it's referred to as the Bema seat or the judgment seat of Christ, where we'll stand before God, and everyone's works will be tried by fire. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Okay, clarify. We will not be judged for our sin. A Christian, every Christian, our sin was dealt with on the cross. Undeservedly so. But he's removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Scripture tells us he casts it behind his back. He buries it in the deepest sea. And he remembers it no more. He's not going to go ahead and flash in front of all heaven an account of everything we did wrong in this life. No, our sins were judged at the cross. What will be judged, though, are our works, our motives. It is up to God and God alone to judge our motives. That's one reason we need to be careful here on earth to not pass judgment on somebody because what we think might be their reasoning. Be careful about that. You don't know another person's heart, but oh, our Lord does. And what's going to happen is our work, our activity, our service, what we do is going to be judged. It's going to be tried so as by fire. The scripture tells us if it endures the fire, it's going to come forth as gold, silver, and precious stones. If our works are not pleasing to the Lord... They're going to be burned as wood, hay, and stubble. Those will pass off the scene. But we'll be rewarded for those things we do for him. Our service, our living for him, our enduring persecution, 
our seeking to reach others for Christ. There are five crowns mentioned in the New Testament, which the Lord is going to give out as a result of rewarding those whose service was for him. If what I do, I do for my own self-gratification, my own self-glory, for that pat on the back, it's going to burn up. It's not, for, it's not for the Lord, it's for me. But what I do for him, that will endure that trial, that test, that fire, and I will be rewarded for. The good news is, those crowns we receive, we get to cast them back at Jesus' feet in gratitude for all he's done for us. Well, that's a whole other message altogether. But this judgment that's being spoken of is the judgment of believers' works. Romans 14.10 It does say, for we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. See, just as Peter has already emphasized the idea of God's impartiality, we're all going to be on level ground standing before the Lord. Saints, I'm talking about Christians, all going to stand before the Lord, all going to be judged by the same method. And as a result, multitudes will stand before him either empty-handed or with rewards. They can give back to him. So this is the word of of encouragement Peter is sending to these individuals, this matter of judgment. Not judgment in the light of punishment, but judgment in the light of knowing God is keeping track and one day will reward us accordingly. That's why the scripture reminds us, weary not in well-doing for in due season you shall reap if you faint not. Paul wrote, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So this encouragement Peter writes to these folks says, judgment's coming. Now, there are seven judgments talked about in in, in the New Testament, but this one is the judgment of believers in regard to what we do for Christ. And we can be encouraged to know, no matter how difficult the struggle may be in this life. You be faithful to Christ, and one day it will be rewarded. Yes, only God can know our motives, and only God can properly reward them as such. But he went on to write something else here, and he said, If you call on the Father, who without respect of persons judgeth according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here. See, this speaks of our residence. Talks about sojourning. The word sojourn, it means to dwell in a place as a stranger. The writer of Hebrews referred to the saints of God as strangers and pilgrims on earth. In verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 10, he said, For he looked, speaking of Abraham, he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And in verse 16, but now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. Beloved, we have a home. We have a city. We have a place that is going to be our eternal home. And it's not here. That's the good news. Our residence here is temporary. Our home in heaven is eternal. 
It's why Paul and other New Testament writers, it's why in Scripture we're reminded not to drive our tent pegs too deeply into this world. Not to get entangled in the affairs of this world. Beloved, it's all going to pass away. It's all going to be gone one day. What we do for the Lord, the treasures we lay up in heaven, those will lead to the blessings we have in in heaven and in the presence of the Lord. This life in which we live, it's limited. Think about Peter writing to these folks going through persecution. It was not pleasant. There might not have been an end in sight for some of those folks. But he's reminding them, yea, it will end. Like the old preacher who used to say my favorite verse was, it came to pass. You know, there's coming a day when all this struggle and suffering and sorrow this world affords is going to be behind us. Our Lord's going to wipe away all tears and we will forever be with the Lord. What a joy to know we have a different residence than here. 1 Corinthians 2.9. I'd refer to this verse because we can read Scripture and we can imagine what, it's going to be, what it looks like. We have this, this glimpse into heaven. But Paul, writing to the Corinthians, said, As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither hath entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. As wonderful as we think life may be down here. And there are times when it is wonderful. It's not all miserable, is it? I certainly hope not. But as things get worse and worse, heaven should become sweeter and sweeter to us. Someone has asked, why why do Christians have to go through much suffering and struggles and difficulties in this life? I believe one of the reasons would be to remind us we don't need to be overly attached to what we have here. And we need to long for our Lord's soon return, that we might be in heaven with him. Peter is reminding them the importance of their reliance upon the Lord, the reassurance that God is fair and just in all matters, the reward he will give to them, the future residence, the future home of all saints. And then he closes this particular verse with two words, in fear. This is the reverence and adoration saints of God should have for the Lord. This word is not used here with the idea of someone just being deathly afraid of seeing the Lord or being in his presence. Remember when Adam and Eve, they sinned against the Lord, they violated his word, and they hid in the garden. And as God walked through the garden, Adam said he was hiding. (laughs) We know he is hiding. And why was he hiding? He was afraid to see the Lord. Well, that's not what this fear is talking about here. This is not the fear that God is going to squash you like a bug if you don't walk a tight line. It's not the fear that God is going to expel you from heaven, if it were possible. No. It is the reverence, the adoration, the awe we hold 
for a true and holy God. Isaiah describing what it was like in his vision of the Lord in Isaiah chapter 6. He talked about how the angels shouted. Talked about how the, the building shook. And seeing God in his holiness. There is such a lack of holiness today in Christianity. Sad to say, too many Christians have no use for this matter of living a separated, clean, pure, holy life unto the Lord. Shame on them for that. Hebrews 12, 28 tells us, Wherefore, we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Why would we not adore he who has done so much for us? The great price that was paid on Calvary's cross is offered freely to anyone and everyone who would accept this wonderful gift of forgiveness and eternal life. Why would we not revere he who did so much for us? Beloved, Peter helps these folks to understand. Even though the days were dark, even though the the struggles were hard, The way was difficult. Nonetheless, he said, be encouraged. Judgment's on the way. And he wasn't speaking of the judgment that would come to those who were the enemies of God. He was speaking of the reward that would come to those who faithfully lived for God and endured the struggles. To Timothy, Paul wrote, they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We don't know what extent That persecution may be for every individual in every situation, but the fact of the matter is, life does sometimes get difficult as we choose to live for the Lord. That's not a reason to quit walking with Him. It's not a reason to throw up our hands and say, I've had enough. No, it's a reason to throw up our hands and say, thank you, God, for what you have done for me. Help me to live for you and to be pleasing in thy sight that I might hear you one day say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. How thrilling it would be to hear the Lord say that to every one of you. That's my desire. That's my prayer. Beloved, we need to be serious about this matter of sin and holy living. I could say more now than ever, but Actually, there's never been a time when being serious about the things of God was of less or more importance than another. But if we call God our Father, we should reflect His nature. I'll close with this short illustration. An Italian poet named Dante Alighieri was deeply immersed in meditation in a church service one day. And as he thought about the Lord and his sacrifice, he was overwhelmed by his own sin and his lack of living a holy life. 
so consumed by his thoughts at the moment, he failed to kneel at the appropriate time when everybody else kneeled and just stood there in, uh, in praying. And afterward, some men went to the bishop and they, they insisted that he be punished for his lack of reverence at that particular time. His response in defense of his failure to kneel was this. If those who accuse me had had their eyes and minds on God as I had, they too would have failed to notice events around them, and they most certainly would have not noticed what I was doing. We keep our eyes on the Lord, and we seek to please him, and we seek to do his will. Everything else pales in comparison. It is that future reward which should motivate us to live for him and be pleasing to him each and every day.